0: Welcome, I'm Doug Morgan, and you're listening to Uncommon Sense, where we hunt for the truth in the topics you're not supposed to talk about, Christianity and politics. I was recently given a board game that has as its theme, one of a politically conservative bent (laughs) It, it is designed to be entertaining to those who can poke fun at a liberal mindset liberals well they don't have a sense of humor so so there's no game for them but but this game came with a warning on the side of the box and it reads this it says this game may not be suitable for those that have recently toppled a statue or wore a mask in the shower. (laughs) That kind of gives you an idea of of where this game is going, right? (laughs) In other words, it is not for you if you are susceptible to being offended easily, right? The Bible calls itself a stumbling stone, meaning that it can offend or challenge those that have the courage to read it. I have heard so many people tell me that the Bible is just an outdated text and it, it's not relevant for today. They will say that it has outdated ideas and they give Paul and, and some of his writings as proof that the Bible has a, a bunch of, of old stereotypes that we should no longer pay any attention to. They'll say things like, you know we we've grown as a people and, and a society and no longer need the Bible and, and what it has to say and, and they'll spout stuff like that. But anyway, it, it is this true? I mean if 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 we hear this from so many different people, is it really true? Is the Bible against equal treatment of women, for instance? Or does the Bible set the groundwork for a godly view of women and their role in society? Well, from a blog named truthovertribe.com, Andy Patton says, In an age when the wrong tweet can end your career, the Bible stubbornly resists cancellation. (laughs) It, It continues to hold out its wisdom to the modern world, even when modern world flatters itself that it has transcended the primitive, regressive ways of ancient Christianity. It continues to puzzle, delight, inspire, confound, and transform people in the 21st century as much as it did in the 1st century. God's morals, God's ideas, and God's ways are unchanging, whereas human systems of thought and life blow like the shifting winds of time. As God says in the book of Isaiah, quote, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As for the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's Isaiah 55, 8, 9. Now, the Bible never completely blends in with any culture that reads it. Uh, Different parts of Scripture always stand out starkly against the background of its surrounding culture. Some parts strike people as as praiseworthy, others as worthy of blame and derision. Okay, fair enough, right? (laughs) That still leaves us with the problem of what we are to do with those passages that stand out against the backdrop of our modern, modern assumptions what do we do with those bits that make us uh, squirm keep us up late tossing in our beds maybe and and sometimes make us want to walk away from god altogether i'd like to suggest another way than than pretending like those passages aren't there or <laughs> or using them to as justification to consign the bible uh, along with you know bloodletting and witchcraft and Infant exposure to to the ash heap of history's misforgotten ideas. What is the best way to navigate those passages? Is it maybe the best way isn't to steer around them, but to dive deeper into them and really understand them for the first time? What if there are reasonable explanations? For the Bible's apparent contradictions, maybe someone would call it. What if when you go digging into the context of the problematic parts of the Bible, rather than rot, (laughs) you, you find treasure with the power to heal the wounds and the divisions and the alienations of even our modern world. The, the, the past is a, a foreign land, uh, the, and, and writings from the past are, are messages from a world that is often very different from our own. Nobody wants to be the tourist who gets off the plane in Paris and complains about how few McDonald's there are in France. Yet, we we do the same thing when we open up the Bible and level our, our easy judgments against it just like a a foreign culture, the Bible is hard to understand at times. This is is not to say that the message of Jesus is too sophisticated for a simple understanding of the gospel, nor is it to say that the Spirit can't use simple words or a plain understanding of, of Scripture to grow His church. I'm only saying That it is not natural for everyone to assume the best of literature (sighs) that they they do not immediately understand. It, It takes time to learn where our personal and cultural blind spots are when it comes to literature, especially ancient literature like the Bible. So, when you come to a problematic passage in the Bible, do what good tourists do slow down remain humble reserve judgment and get to know the new land that you've come to there are a few issues where the conflict between the bible and the institutions of of the modern world are are more apparent than with the bible's view on women a surface reading of scripture can leave people feeling like the bible's you know really morality is is repressive and and its view of of the sexes is oppressive. That's the bad news. But the good news is that the deeper that you go into the Bible's view of women, the more clear it becomes that rather than being a tool of patriarchy, the Bible undermines the oppression of women at every turn. I'd like to demonstrate that fact by focusing on one controversial figure when it comes to the Bible's view of women, and that's the Apostle Paul. I've heard a lot of people talk about, well, you know, I don't listen to 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 Paul. I don't I don't read what he has to say because he his view on women they're it's just so poor I can't can't be from God. That type of thing, right? Paul's alleged hatred of women can be a stumbling block, a block for for people for whom the the Bible's view of women is is a hot issue. So. So let's tackle a a few questions about controversial New Testament passages to to see if criticisms leveled against Paul's view of women stand up to reality. What are the most problematic passages for modern people when it comes to Paul's view of women? Well, most of the debate about Paul's so-called hatred of women centers around three New Testament passages. Number one, is first Corinthians eleven two through sixteen, where it says things like Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman for man was not made for woman, but woman for man. And there's also first corinthians fourteen twenty six through forty, where it says things like, uh, the woman should be uh, should keep silent in in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should uh, be in submission, as the law also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to to speak in church. Uh, Ephesians 5, 21 through 33 says things like, why submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. So there's things like this. And, And and what can be said about these passages? Uh, a lot, I think, but but first we need to go over a few fundamental rules for reading Paul's letters as well. Rule number one, the New Testament letters are only a one side conversation. So <laughs> let me explain. Uh, all of the conversational passages in Paul's letters appear, uh, in letters addressed to specific congregations with specific problems and, and specific issues. Uh, scholar and, and staff member uh, at Al-Habri uh, Fellowship, his, his name is, is Marty Keyes, explains, uh, explains it this way. And he says, quote, the letters are one side of the conversation. The context into which they were written forms the other side of the conversation. To reconcile the apparent contradictions in the Bible, the careful student of the Bible needs to roll up their sleeves and dig into the context of the New Testament passages, unquote. Now, sometimes when you find something contradictory or objectionable, the problem appears or, uh, uh, disappears when you get to know the other side of the conversation, the context into which the passage was written. This is especially true with the New Testament letters. They are high context documents. <laughs> I mean, trying to understand the letters without studying the context is like trying to drive without opening your eyes. <laughs> I mean, you, you you shouldn't be surprised when you go driving into a ditch. <laughs> so, so let's go. Let's go to rule number two. Translation in involves culturally conditioned decisions. Now I, I hope this is not a big surprise, but the Bible wasn't written in english. paul Paul wrote his letters in ancient Greek uh, that were later translated into English, and translation involves decisions. Those decisions often reflect the cultural uh, the, the, really the the culture and the the um, prerogatives of the translators. Now, Professor and writer D. A. Carlson. Uh, Carson said uh, this, he said, no human being living in time and speaking in language can ever be entirely culture free about anything, unquote. I mean, this is one of the reasons I keep saying over and over and over again that we have to understand from where the writer or the speaker is coming from. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's, it's if it's about biblical type of things. It doesn't matter if it's political. I mean, if you're reading a story online or whatever, you need to understand from which that writer or speaker, whatever, what what bent he's coming from. Everybody has one, and it's important to understand that. Many versions of the Bible in English have been produced over the past centuries. Uh, some of them are are smudged with fingerprints of patriarchy. But but that doesn't mean that the Bible endorses patriarchy. Take, for example, um, the example of, of, of the list of Paul's co-workers in Romans 16. The list of his colleagues includes seven women who he recognizes for their ministry. He names more female ministers than he does males. Though... One of them, Phoebe, is, is 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 called a deacon. Now, the the Kyrie Study Bible reads the cultural preferences of the translators into the original text and renders the word deacon as servant without apparent warrant. Well, in, in the same passage, Paul refers to to um Lunia as um, quote prominent among the apostles, unquote. However, other translations of the Bible have changed her name to a male form, and that's uh, Junius, because the translators reasoned that if she was prominent among the apostles, then she couldn't have been a woman. But again, a careful reading of the original text corrects these distortions of Paul's writings. So let's let's go to the last one. Rule number three: Paul often quotes the ideas that he he is addressing before refuting them, and I think this is really important here in in the making of 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 a biblical womanhood. Beth Allison Barr writes this. She says, "Quote: Paul was an educated Roman woman, uh, or citizen. Sorry, he was Paul was an educated Roman citizen." <laughs> he would have been familiar with contemporary uh, rhetorical practices that corrected the faulty understanding by quoting the faulty understanding and then refuting it. Paul does this in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 uh, with his quotations, all things are lawful for me, food is uh, meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and it is good for a man not to touch a woman. In such cases, Paul is quoting the faulty views of the Gentile world, such as, all things are lawful to me. And Paul then strongly modifies them. Just because Paul writes a sentence doesn't mean he endorses it. And this is what I mean by this. the, The moments when Paul is quoting an idea before refuting it can be easy to miss at first, of course, because the, the ancient world didn't have quotation marks as we do now. However, a careful reading of many passages that would be otherwise confusing and misleading shows that Paul means the exact opposite of the ideas he quotes from the Gentile world. With those three rules in mind, let's go back to those three conversational passages and see if we can make sense of them. I mean like for instance Ephesians 5 and and the and the other household codes shouldn't be read against the backdrop of the 21st century expectations and in institutions about gender roles but against the backdrop of the social arrangements of the of the cultural moment into which they were written when when we do that we see how subversive they, they really were to the Roman patriarchy. In, in Roman society, husbands had com, complete authority over their wives, even the power of life and death. Um, women only had legal status through their, their husbands. Female submission was backed by the power of law. Men re, re, um, reigned supreme in their households as, as a king reigns in his country, let's say in the in that context, the sentence in 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 Ephesians five about women submitting to their husbands would have been entirely expected by the culture of the day. The things that follow that sentence would have been revolutionary. Did you hear what I said? Those things that he that he quoted there at right at first, they were entirely expected. but the things that followed that, are things that would have been revolutionary. Paul goes on to tell Christian husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Well, he served her. He died for her. He submitted himself to death for her sake. And not only that, Paul went on to teach husbands that rather than having the power of life and death over their wives, their very bodies belonged to their wives. And it was the responsibility of the husband to nourish and to cherish the body of his wife in turn. When read this way, the household codes become. The organizing documents for a resistance movement against Roman patriarchy. I mean, each Christian home a a subversive cell of another way of living, a living, really, a, a allegiance to another king, other than Caesar. There is much more to say about these passages and 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 others like them, but but one thing is clear: when we are really ready to dismiss the Bible as outdated and, and backward and irrelevant, we should learn to ask ourselves, what if I'm wrong? That question can lead you on a journey of discovery into this ancient text that will unearth its its culture-altering wisdom and life-altering beauty. And like Michael Brown of The Daily Wire says, he says, there is no question whatsoever that the books of the bible were written against the background of strongly patriarchal societies from the the ancient near east to the roman the, the greco-roman world in these societies men's and women's rights were well centrally not equal and and the, the some servants of of women to men was virtually taken for granted. The question is, how much does the Bible continue to reinforce this mindset? And to what extent does it plant seeds for dramatic change? On one hand, there are Torah laws, which reinforce the status quo, such as a a husband can nullify his wife's vow to God, and that's in Numbers numbers 30, 13. and, And a husband can bring uh, a charge to the priest if he suspects his wife uh, has committed adul- adultery, Numbers 5, 11 through 15. There, there, there is no provision, however, for a wife to do the same. In the New Testament as well, the wi- wives are urged to be you know, submissive to their husbands, First Peter 3, 1 through 6, and and it is taken for granted, or explicitly stated either way, that that contextual leaders will be male. However, there is much more that the Bible has to say about the importance of women and the status of women. In the Old Testament, Deborah became the leader of a nation known for her courage in the face of danger and putting other men to shame. Just read Judges 4 through four and 6, chapters 4 through 6. She, she was definitely like the, the Margaret Thatcher or the Golda Meir um, several thousand years before their time. There were also women who served as prophetesses, including Miriam, the sister of Moses, and and Huldah, the contemporary of Jeremiah. The Old Testament even spoke of the day when both sons and daughters, male servants, female servants, would prophesy. It also says that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on everyone. Even more significantly, the book of Proverbs ends with a lengthy passage literally twenty two verses, in fact, praising a godly woman, not for her looks, but for her industriousness and her wisdom and her confidence and her entrepreneurship, her independence, and her spirituality. let me let me tell you what i, I I'm talking about here. It says it says in proverbs thirty one nine through twenty one it says, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does she does him good, not harm. All the days of her life, she seeks wool and flax and works with, with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes uh, her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hands to the poor, and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afar of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She makes beds covering for herself her clothes is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders in uh, of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come she opens her mouth with wisdom and the, and the teachings of kindness is on her tongue she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness her children rise up and call her blessed her husband also and he praises her many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all, is what he says. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And verse 37 says, give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. Ask yourself when it comes to this passage, how can a passage like this find its way into a so-called misogynistic book. Go back to the, the New Testament. Miriam, Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was highly honored while a number of, of women played important roles in the life uh, and, and ministry of Jesus. Not only so, but after he rose from the dead, it was women who first learned of his resurrection, and women who were sent by Jesus to tell the other men. They, in turn, didn't believe the women. and And when we look at the life and ministry of the apostle Paul, who penned the 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 words that we talked about in Ephesians, there is a long list of women who were prominently involved in his ministry, as we talked about. It was also Paul who, penned the radical words that said, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. That's Galatians 3.28. The implications of this single sentence have been felt throughout the centuries. To, To be sure, he was not saying that there were no such categories as Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female rather he was saying that in jesus there was no caste system or class system and and that all were equal in him the implications of this were and and are really massive that's why in it is no wonder that as the early Christian faith spread through the ancient world. Women found it especially attractive. In in his book uh, from 1996, "The Rise of Christianity: How the Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement Became a Prominent Religious Force in the Western World in a Few Centuries," respected anthropologist Rodney Stark explains, admits commentary. Uh, den- den- uh, denications of Christianity as patriarchal and sexist, it is easily forgotten that the church was so especially attractive to women that in three- 370, the Emperor Valentinian issued a written order to Pope Damascus I requiring that Christian missionaries cease calling at the homes of pagan women. Stark also explained that Christian women did indeed enjoy considerable greater status and power than did the pagan women. One primary reason was that the Christians did not condone female infanticide. And in an ancient world, female bodies were discarded at, at, at much higher rates than male babies. The spread of Christianity changed that, making infanticide illegal. Stark also noted that the more favorable Christian view of women is also demonstrated in the in the condemnation of divorce and incest and marital infidelity and and polygamy. Like pagans, early Christians prized female chastity. But unlike pagans, they rejected the double standard that gave pagan men so much sexual license. So the double standard that requires sexual purity for women, but not for men, was also obliterated by the cross. Stark also added that should they be widowed, Christian women also enjoyed very substantial advantages. Noting that close examination of Roman, um, you know, the law and this type of thing, precedents also suggests that women held positions of power and status within the Christian churches, and this is really not surprising in the, in the least. When we when we look at all of it together, what we can see is that while the Bible is written against a heavily patriarchal background with some of those patriarchal concepts reinforced in in the biblical text, it is the very principles laid out in these books that have proved so emancipating for women through the centuries. These principles combat unfair male domination on, on, on the one hand, and radical feminism On the other hand, they are the principles of life and liberation, as as hundreds of millions of Christian women can attest to today. So, I mean, so like, like so many other biblical passages, when you look deeply into them, you see what God was trying to tell his flawed people. I mean, in this case, we can see where it it doesn't go overboard. It it is a happy medium, and that's what we so oftentimes see when it comes to God. He is not a God of extremes. What He is a God of is 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 a. Is one where we can see that that no, it's not. He's not a god of feminism, and no, he's not a a, a god that that uh, puts down women in in, in uh, lifting up men. That that's not it at all. What he's saying that we're all equal. We we yes, we have different roles, and yes, we do different things, and yes, we're called to to, to such things, but but we're all equal. And and that's the message that we see throughout the Bible. So to say that it's an outdated text and one that, that, that we shouldn't be following is just simply ignorant of what the Bible is actually saying. Now, you may agree with all this and you may actually disagree with all this. I, you know, I would love to hear from you on it. And of course, you can do that at UncommonSensePodcast.com. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast is a production of Organite Communications.